Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good morning, everyone. This is Kennard speaking. I'm your host uh, for the Merciful Servants of God Biblical Instructional Program. Uh, today is March 31st, 2012 on the Roman calendar. And uh, we're going to discuss today Pesach or Passover and the new moon, how they are related and so forth. And in this program, we're also going to talk about uh, the difference between the full moon and the new moon. There's some confusion, I, I think, for many years about uh, the full moon and the new moon. Some people are uh, have observed Passover last week and... Um, they think that they're doing it correctly according to the Bible, and the Jews have done it correctly for many years, folks, and the purpose of this Bible study is to prove that, and that we need to be doing it according to uh, new moon observation, not full moon observation. Uh, the reason why people are doing it according to the full moon is because of their misunderstanding of a scripture that was quoted out of the King James Version, and it appears that you do all these things on the full moon, which is uh, happens around the 14th or the 15th of the month. And uh, this program is going to explain that. Give me about one minute, folks. I'll be right back. Okay, that didn't last too long. <laughs> and before I get into this, though, uh, the I have a disclaimer at the bottom of each and every program, and I do state I'm going to address some major events happening in the world. Well, I'm sure everyone has heard about the the young black male, 17 years old, Mr. Or yeah, I guess I might as well call him Mr. Martin. Uh, he was murdered by this other guy, and the guy, of course, is claiming that it was self-defense, and of course. The family of um, Trayvon, I think his name is Trayvon Martin, uh, feel that, of course, uh, he was gunned down inappropriately and it wasn't a self-defense thing. So we don't have all the facts, so I- I'm not going to make any judgments uh, based on not having all the facts, but it's not good any- either way. And it's causing a lot of racial racial tension here in this country, unfortunately, and perhaps around the world. So we need to be praying that the truth comes out. And if indeed this individual did murder him, then it's just a sad situation. I mean, murder him in a wrong... Uh, well, there's a difference between murder and kill. 
if he actually did terminate his life based on self-defense, then he would have just killed him. But if he killed him of no just cause, then that would be considered murder, according to the Bible, which would be a sin. So, again, I don't have all the facts. I'm not going to, like a lot of people, well, he's black. Of course, since he was black, of course, he must have uh, persecuted him and so forth. Not, Not necessarily true. Not all people that are not black persecute blacks and so we have to get all the facts but the facts it appears that he may have done murdered him but we we don't know yet so we have to get all the facts but i'm just addressing it because it is a major issue and it's it's gone worldwide because of social media and we need to, to pray for the truth to come out and justice to be served either way The economy is is not any better, despite what President Obama and his cronies are saying. And we need to to pray for the truth about that. I've told people many, many programs that our true debt is like $200 trillion. If you could just type U.S. true debt $200 trillion, uh, you'll find probably a few articles that addresses that. So if we're $200 trillion, how are we going to get out of that? Well, certainly not the way we're we're conducting government right now, folks. So we need to be praying for the truth to come out. Uh, Many people worldwide, believers, non-believers that are struggling and suffering, you should be praying for both of them because, as we're going to learn today, uh, Yeshua died for all of mankind, not just for the Jews and, and for believers. So we need to be praying for them and I'm still hearing rumors, as as Yeshua stated, uh, what happened about wars. Uh, there's a there was a recent report that I got that perhaps something may happen in Passover next week, which is uh, April 6th, I think, on the Jewish calendar and also on the New Moon calendar. So, which is pretty interesting if that's the case. But anyway, uh, I know me and my family will be um, celebrating Passover uh, this Friday. So, and I'm going to hopefully teach people today how to observe Passover, when to do it, etc. And it's, it's a very interesting Bible study about Passover. It's, it's really a story about redemption, a story about mankind being redeemed from eternal death. That's what the story of Passover truly is all about. Because there's a scripture, and I'm going to quote it, where it states that Yeshua is our Passover lamb. And then when you understand that, in that context, you understand that Passover is really about obtaining salvation through the shed blood of Yeshua Messiah. That's what it's all about. So, at April 6th, at evening, that's when we're going to start, according to the Bible, that's when you do it. I know other people are doing it the day before and all that. They're not understanding the scriptures properly, and they're not doing it properly. So, anyway, let's begin this Bible study. And then, if we do have time, to go over the Torah readings, which is interesting about the priests and so forth. 
Okay, so let's turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 begins the the Passover story. And it is linked with new moon observation, which I'm going to get into today as well. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read this in the Jewish um, Publication Society version. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So what he's telling Moses is is that this is when you start counting. This is when you start observing. Now, month in the original Hebrew means Kodesh, and it means the new moon. So month means new moon in Hebrew. So you can say, this new moon shall be unto you the beginning of months. All right. Speak unto you. And then we get back to the Jewish Publication Society version. Verse 3, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel. Congregation means assembly. Saying, In the tenth day of this month, they, they shall take to them every man a lamb. Now, Yeshua is our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. So keep that in mind. According to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Verse 4, And if the household be too little for a lamb, then shall he and his neighbor next unto his house take one according to the number of the souls, according to every man's eating, you shall take make count for the lamb. All right, so right now you have the Lord telling Moses, or Moses that this should be the beginning of months. And he, uh, Jews understand that to be aviv, A-V-I-V or aviv. That is the, the beginning of months. And, and how do you observe the beginning of months? Well, there's a scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 16 that I don't think too many people really understand. But we're going to read this in two versions to, to, to truly understand what the scripture is talking about. Now, I'll read it in the old King James Version first. Deuteronomy 16, verse 1. Now, in the King James Version, it states, Observe the month of Abib, or A-B-I-B in this case, and keep the Passover until the Lord... Thy God. So the Passover and the new moon is linked. New moon of observation is linked, folks. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. Okay. Now, I want you to pay attention to the word observe here. That's translated from the King James Version. It means shamar. And it means to guard, to protect, to attend to to look narrowly, to look. And that's what I want you to... So it means to observe, to look. Look at the new moon. That's what this is saying here. So you determine the new moon by observation. Now, there's another scripture that, uh, scriptures that not too many people know about called the Targums. The Targums were written um, back uh, in Old Testament times. All right, and the Targums, I mean, later on in the first century, they were finalized, but they were done, they were originated in Babylon. And the Targums are really a paraphrase of the scriptures. And sometimes the paraphrasing makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. In this case, it makes sense. So I'm going to read this in Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, in the Targum version. It says, Be mindful of to keep the times of the festivals, with the intercalations of the year 
and to observe the rotation thereof. In the month Abib, to perform the Pesha, well that, that's uh, Passover in Hebrew, Pesha, before the Lord your God, because in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Mizraim, or Egypt, you shall eat it therefore by night. And that's what we're going to do uh, this coming Friday evening, eat it by night. All right, and this is, again, the Targum translation. Let me read it to you again. Be mindful to keep the times of the... This is Deuteronomy 16, verse 1. Be mindful to keep the times of the festivals with the intercalculations of the year and to observe the rotation thereof in the month of Aviv to perform the Peshach before the Lord your God. So we have scriptural proof and also the Targums, which is a commentary linked with scripture to show us that the way to be able to tell of the new month or the new moon is by observation of the rotation of the moon. All right. And the Jews traditionally do that through the little sliver of the crescent showing. That's when they know that there's a new moon. And then when they see that, the following day after that is declared the new moon. That is the way the Karaites do it. That's the way Microrood does it. Microrood is just following what the Karaites do. And for more information on that, go to Karaite Corner. Just type in Karaite Corner, and it gives you all the information about how to do that. Now, I know there's a big issue about whether or not the barley is a vive and all that. Well, let's turn to Genesis chapter 1, where he talks about the moons and the stars and, and their use and so forth. I'm trying to find it here. Right. Genesis 1 verse 14 states in the Jewish Publication Society Bible, it states, And God said, Let there be light in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. So the Bible really states that the, the way to be able to uh, tell whether there's a new moon or not is by observation. By observation, okay? So that's what it says. I know traditionally uh, Jews have done the Aviv, but it, it seems to always fall on the right day anyway, uh, the way they're doing it. So I, I, wouldn't re but too, too, I wouldn't really make too much of a big deal out of whether or not the barley is Aviv or not. What is should be the focus is whether you see the crescent, the little sliver, of, of the moon, and then when you see uh, the light on, on the moon, and then when you see that, that's when you know that that's the new moon, according to what Jews have traditionally done. And remember, Jesus Christ stated in John chapter 4, verse 22, that salvation is of the Jews. Now, Yeshua wouldn't have said that unless a lot of their teachings, and, a lot, and I mean a lot of their teachings, are correct and, and traditions. Uh, there are some that aren't, but Paul confirmed Yeshua in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Verse 1, and I'm reading this a complete Jewish Bible version. Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of being circumcised? Or that's a, a Jewish idiom uh, for adhering to the traditions of the Talmud and, and the Mishnah and so forth. There's a lot of good things in, in those books. Verse 2, much in every way. In the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. So he's just confirming Yeshua, and then in John chapter 4, 
beginning in verse 22, says, You people don't know what you are worshiping. We worship what we do, what we do know because salvation comes from the Jews. All right? So Yeshua confirmed that, that many of the teachings of the Jews are correct, but he told us to be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he defined leaven as the teachings. Okay? So and maybe we'll, we'll quote that scripture later on, later on today. Now, what was done on the new moon? I have a section here from, let's see, where is this from here? Oh, this is actually uh, the Hattarit section. The Hattarit section of JPS Bible Commentary. And it says, Connections between the Hattar and the special Shabbat. The Hattar announces that on the occasion of the ingathering of Israel from exile, all flesh shall come to worship the Lord, new moon after new moon. Therefore, the ancient new moon rites, uh, Numbers chapter 28, 11, verse 15, are given at eschatolic, uh, you know, prophetic and universalist dimension. Eschatological, okay. The monthly renewal of heavenly light thus comes to symbolize the hope for a future fellowship of all nations on earth. In antiquity, special feasts marked the sighting of the new moon and the people were encouraged to attend the event in Jerusalem. According to the late Agatic tradition, God gave the new moon festival to women especially as a reward for not contributing their jewelry to the making of the golden calf, which is uh, pretty interesting there. That is, these faithful souls and their descendants are enjoined to observe this day more stringently than males in this world, so that in the world to come they shall be renewed, like the new moons. Yeah, uh, the new moon is is a renewal of the moon, is a renewal of the month. It says, according to Jewish mystical tradition, from medieval times and the waxing and waning of moonlight reflects the increase and decrease of holiness and unity in the divine and human realm. The lunar cycle thus symbolizes transcendent truth and is not simply a feature of the natural order. So this is this is pretty interesting. So the cycle of the, of the moon has thus offered the opportunity in Jewish ritual and spirituality for a periodic renewal of one's inner light and wholeness. As the moon is not the source, as the moon is not the source of his own light, the symbolism of the new moon invites worshipers to deepen their receptivity to a higher radiance so that they may be connected to a divine dimension and reflected outward into the world. This is the movement from the private to the social realm. In this respect, the Haftar for Rosh Hadish, which is the new moon, reminds a single shelf of its commonality with all creatures. This proclamation of the uh, celebration of God by all flesh in Zion, new moon after new moon, is thus a prophecy of, of a unified humanity that repeatedly renews itself through... Uh, Reciprocity and common concerns. So the new moon. This is this is uh, interesting that the new moon symbolizes the unity of mankind. That's what it really uh, represents. And here's some more information about the new moon. And the new moon is not a day where you. It's not. It's not a Sabbath. It's not listed in Leviticus chapter 23. But you, we should be observing the new moon every month. We should be doing that. In early Israel, it was an important festival. Uh, Isaiah chapters, turn to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Isaiah chapter 1, 12 to 13. It says, yes, you come to appear in my presence, but who asked you to do this, to trample through my courtyards? 
Stop bringing worthless grain offerings. They are like discussing incense to me. Rosh Hadish, or the new moon. Shabbat, calling convocations. I can't stand evil together with your assemblies. You know, so they perverted the, the new moon observation, and they did not celebrate it like they're supposed to. And traditionally, it was a rest day for those who could rest on it. <laughs> okay. But uh, it's, it's not considered a Sabbath. And I know people are going around teaching that, but they're, they're not understanding the scriptures properly. It's definitely not a Sabbath. And let's turn to Second Kings 4, verse 23. Second Kings 4, verse 23. He asks, why are you going going to him today? Isn't, it isn't Rosh Hadish and it isn't a Shabbat. So anyway, when, when someone sees that scripture, they try to say that it's a Sabbath, but it's not a Sabbath. First uh, Samuel chapter 20. First Samuel chapter 20, beginning in verse 5. It says, David answered... This in the uh, Jewish publication Bible, and David said unto Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is a new moon, when I should sit with the king to eat. So let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third day at evening. So the new moon again, it, it appears to be a day of of eating, of celebrations. It says the importance of the new moon is reflected in this sacrificial inventory. It equals the number of offerings on other important festivals. See the table introductory. Well, I'm not going <laughs> to turn it out, but and it's greater. It is, it is greater than Ezekiel's prescription for this day. So, if I can find some other scriptures here in, in reference to that, the new moon here. And we can see that there was a lot of offerings uh, related to the new moon. And yes, there was a trumpet blown on the new moon as well. We're going to get into that here in a minute. I just want to find these scriptures that describe the new moon here. Ezekiel 46, verses 6 to 7. It says, In the day of the new moon, it, it shall be a young bullock without blemish, and six lambs and a ram, they shall be without blemish, and he shall prepare a meat offering, an ephah for a bullock, and an ephah for a ram, and for the lambs according to his hand shall obtain unto him an oil to an ephah. And you may be wondering, what is an ephah? Ephah is a measure for grain. That's what it is. Okay, so you can see there how new moon observance there is uh, 
talked about. Okay. So moving along here. Trying to find this other scripture here. The reference to the new moon. Okay, I think that'll be all the scriptures, basically, I'm going to quote in reference to how to observe the new moon, other than the, the following scriptures we're going to quote here. That has traditionally been a confusion about the new moon. Now, this one scripture, Psalm 81, verse 3, in the King James Version, it says, Blow up the trumpet in the new moon, in the time appointed, on our solemn feast day. So we're going to look and analyze this. Now we know what new moon is. I've already gone over that. It's not referring to the, the feast of trumpets in this context here. Although the feast of trumpets, it can refer also to the feast of trumpets because the feast of trumpets does happen on a new moon day. All right? So I'm going to describe this to you here using uh, Gil's commentary, which I think is excellent. It says, Blow up the trumpet in the new moon, either in every new moon or the first day of the month, that's when Tishri occurs, which was, uh, which is um, the, uh, the first day of Tishri is the, the festival of trumpets, or Yom Teror, okay, which was religiously observed by the Jews, or rather the new moon, or the first day of the seventh month, the month Tishri, which day was a memorial blowing of trumpets, which Leviticus 23, verse 34, reveals. Now, the Targum states blow the, trump, blow the trumpet in the month of Tishri. But it, it, biblically, it doesn't mean just Tishri. It means any month, any new month. Okay, so now in the time appointed, it says, So Aben, Ezra, Jarka, and Kimcha interpret the word of set fixed time. See Proverbs 7, verse 20. And the time appointed means the full moon. The full moon occurs in the middle of the month, the 14th or the 15th of the month. And the definition of the full moon is a lunar, this is according to Wikipedia, is a lunar phase that occurs when the moon is on the opposite side of the earth from the sun. More precisely, a full moon occurs when the geocentric apparent longitudes of the sun and moon differ by 180 degrees. The moon is then in op opposition with the sun. So that's when the, that's when the uh, full moon occurs. The time interval between similar lunar phases, the synodic month averages about 29.53 days. Therefore, in those lunar calendars in which each month begins on the new moon, the full moon falls on either the 14th or the 15th of the lunar month. So that describes what the full moon is. Now, I was mentioning to you about the new moon. And what's the difference between the full moon and full moon as far as the observation is concerned? Well, we're about to find it out here. It says, in astronomical terminology, the new moon is a lunar phase which happens when the moon is full and its monthly orbital motion around the sun lies between the earth and the sun and is therefore in conjunction with the sun as seen from the earth. At this time, the dark an illuminated portion of the moon faces almost directly toward her so that the moon is not visible to the naked eye. 
Okay, so that that's what the new moon is. The original meaning of the phrase new moon was the first visible crescent, and that's what it is. That's the original meaning of the phrase new moon was the first visible crescent of the moon after conjunction with the sun. So that's when, and that's what it means when I read those scriptures to you in Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, especially the target version, when that rotation of the sun reached conjunction with the sun, the moon, rather, reached conjunction with the sun, and then the first visible crescent of that, that lets you know that there is a new moon, and then the following day is the new moon. That's the way the Karaites do it, and that's the way Michael Rood does it. And it states here in this Wikipedia article about this, this takes place over the western horizon in a brief period between sunset and moonset, and therefore the precise time and even date of the appearance of the new moon by this definition will be influenced by a, by the location of the observer. The astronomical new moon, sometimes known as the dark moon to avoid confusion, occurs by definition at the moment of the conjunction and the elliptic longitude with the sun when the moon is invisible from the earth. This moment is unique and does not depend on location and in certain circumstances it coincides with a solar eclipse. Now, as far as location and all that is concerned, traditionally uh, by Jews it was, this, it was announced at Jerusalem. So that's where I know many people think you could do it by your home and all that. No, it's done based on what's going on in Jerusalem. And then it is announced throughout the world, and that's the way it was done back in the first century. And remember, Jesus Christ endorsed Judaism. He stated that salvation is of the Jews. Women, you don't know what you're, you're worshiping. We know what we worship because salvation is of the Jews. So that, that's what he said. Let's go back to what he said there in John. Chapter 4. Verse 22. John 4, verse 22. I'm reading this in the uh, complete Jewish Bible version here. It says, You people don't know what you are worshiping. We worship what we do know because salvation comes from the Jews. So salvation comes from the Jews. So, and he told the lady that she didn't know what she was worshiping. All right, so, again, let's go over what the new moon is. The new moon is the first visible crescent of the moon after conjunction with the sun. The full moon is a lunar phase that occurs when the moon is on the opposite side of the earth and from the sun. A full moon occurs when the geocentric apparent longitudes of the sun and the moon differ by 180 degrees. The moon is then in opposition with the sun, so it's not in conjunction, it's in opposition. And it falls around the 14th or the 15th of the month. So it's important that we understand these things so we can understand the scripture. Psalm 81, verse 3, that so many people are confused about. All right, so getting back to the gill commentary about this and the time appointed that phrase means the full moon so it's, it's talking about in the time appointment which means on the 14th or the 15th of the month and some translations has it in the time appointed in the full moon and and getting back to that King James version of this many people are confused because it says blow the trumpet in the new moon in the time appointed they think that the new moon is the full moon and it's not New moon means new moon, and then in the time appointed means the full moon. <laughs> so 
this scripture is saying blow the trumpet in the new moon. When the new moon occurs, you blow the trumpet. And then in the time appointed, that means the full moon on our solemn feast day. All right, so the word feast, what does that mean in this context? The word feast in the Hebrew means festival gathering, feast, pilgrim, feast. And it's referring to the the feasts that occur on the full moon. And what are those? It says, uh, a noun meaning a feast, a festival. The word is, is used numerous times throughout the Old Testament, referring to the feast of the Hebrew religious calendar. It is used of the major feasts, including the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover feast. All right? Uh, which is uh, Exodus uh, 34, verse 18, Exodus 34, 25, Leviticus 23, 6. And then the Festival of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles happens at, at a full moon. And then also the um, the Passover happens around the full moon. So that's what that's referring to. That's what that's referring to. Clear translations of this verse are the following. I can find the uh, in the complete Jewish Bible version. Sound the shofar at Rosh Hadish, which is the the full the new moon, and at full moon for the pilgrim feast. So the shofar is blown on the new moons, and and the shofar is also blown at the full moons at the pilgrim feast, which is the Passover. And also the uh, Festival of Tabernacles. That's when the full moon is blown at that time. So, and then also, um, I think a clearer translation, it says, Blow the ram's horn at the time of the new moon, at the full moon on our festival day. Okay, so the, the scripture is telling you to do two different things. Blow the ram's horn at the time of the new moon, and then blow the horn again at the full moon on our festival day, and those festival days again, as I mentioned to you. Uh, the Passover is on the 14th, yeah, on the 14th and the 15th, and then the Festival of Tabernacles happens around the 15th. That's when the the uh, on the full moon at that, those particular at, at that particular time. That's when the uh, full moon occurs. Now, in the Jewish Publication Society commentary, let's read what it says here because it's pretty interesting here. About this verse. Psalm 81, verse 3. Psalm 81, verse, uh, actually, it's verse um, 4 in the Jewish uh, publication, Study Bible. It says, New moon observed as a holiday in ancient Israel. Here it likely refers to the new year announced with loud blasts, and, and um, it refers really to any new moon. And uh, it says full moon, when Passover and Sukkot begin. So when Passover and Sukkot begin, that's what that's referring to. Our feast day, likely the festival of Sukkot, also called the feast, Hehag. And in rabbinic literature, rabbinic interpretation takes the second part of the verse as referring to Rosh Hashanah, the new year. 
Now that that's rabbinic interpretation, but that's not the biblical interpretation. <laughs> so this is a tradition that you shouldn't follow. But said so this is based on a different understanding of Kish. Instead of a, a full moon, it is interpreted as new moon, the time when the moon is covered. The new moon that is a feast day is Rosh Hashanah. The practice of reciting this to to introduce the daytime Kiddush on Rosh Hashanah derives from this rabbinic interpretation. But it's a rabbinic interpretation. It's not the true biblical interpretation. So Kish is not... uh, The correct interpretation of that is full moon, not new moon. Okay? So that that is the the correct interpretation of that. And I think this is where uh, the full mooners, they get thrown off on the deep end here about that. Uh, the Jews are doing it correctly, and full mooners, you're, you're, you're not doing it correctly, and you need to, to do it according to uh, what the Bible says, first of all. And second of all, if, if the Jews are doing it correctly based on the Bible, you should do that. You should do that. So, and this word means full moon. It doesn't mean new moon. So that's an incorrect translation there. Okay, so I just wanted to go over that. I hope I was, uh, I'm trying to simplify this so that a little child can understand this. So I'm trying to simplify it for you. All right. So we understand that. Let's get back to the Exodus story. We understand the difference between a new moon and a full moon and how they're observed. And, and in that verse, Psalm, 180, Psalm 81 verse 3 is talking about, yes, you blow the trumpet in the new moon. But you also th- blow the trumpet during Shakot and also the uh, Passover, the festival of Passover, which occurs in both cases occurs in the 14th and the 15th of the month. Actually, uh, Sukkot begins on the 15th of the month. They both begin at 14 at the evening, <laughs> which is the 15th of the month. Okay. So I hope I've clarified that. So let's go back to the new moon observation. You can have a what is called a Kiddush, uh a a wine and, and, and bread dinner. Uh there's many different ways you can celebrate the, the new moon, but we should be doing it every month. Um for those who are interested in doing it the biblical calendar way. Please go to Michael Rood, M-I-C-H-A-E-L Rood, R-O-O-D, Michael Rood's uh, Ministries website, Michael Rood Ministries, and he has information on that. Or you can go to Carite Corner, K-A-R-I-T-E, K, capital K as in kite, O-R-N-E-R, and it will explain to you how to do that in detail. Or you can email me at canard at mercifulservantsofgod.com, and I can give you some instructions on how to observe the new moon, and uh, how to calculate it uh, correctly according to um, the teachings of Michael Rood. Matter of fact, they have he has a free teaching online that I recommend anyone look at. It's, it's called the uh, the uh, God's uh, Biblical Calendar. It's on Yahoo, not Yahoo, <laughs> YouTube. And it's a great teaching, and it really, really goes into detail and, and helps you to understand how to keep the holy days the way it was originally kept, according to New Moon observation. Now, that gets me into this conversation about what well, the Jews are keeping according to uh, calculations, right? And 
if you understand the history, the reason why they did that is because the diaspora, they were spread all across the world. How else were they going to keep those days other than doing it that way? So it was an honest attempt at keeping the Jews together, and it worked because the Jews are still together today. Now, I don't make a big deal out of this, and I don't believe God makes a big deal out of this as far as the Jewish calendar versus the new moon calendar. Uh, it doesn't make me any more righteous because I'm keeping the new moon calendar. Um, God has revealed that to me, and in a time that is appropriate for him, he's going to reveal to the Jews how to do it correctly. Matter of fact, the Karaites, uh Nehemiah Gordon, uh, one of the leaders of the Karaites, who uh, is an expert in this new moon observation issue, uh, they are considering, because of his influence, the, um, the Jews in Jerusalem are considering uh, switching over to new moon observation very soon. Well, I shouldn't say very soon, but uh, probably sooner than we think. So eventually it appears that the Jews will be doing it for new moon. They'll be doing it based on new moon observation. And I think for more information about this, you can go to templeinstitute.org. That's templeinstitute.org for more information about that. Okay, so I, I hope I've explained that to you, and um, anybody that's a full mooner, I hope to have explained that to you, that you need to be getting on with the same page as the Jews and as other believers and observing it uh, by new moon observation. And, of course, the Jews do it by their calendar, which is not too much off from the new moon calendar. But eventually they, they, everyone's going to be doing it based on new moon observation, based on the commandment of Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, which states, again, Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, says, observe or look at the new moon of Aviv. And then the Targum translation states the following, be mindful to keep the times of the festivals with the intercalations of the year and to observe the rotation thereof in the month of Aviv, to perform the Pesach before the Lord your God. Because in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt. You shall eat it, therefore, by night. All right. So getting back to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. So let's go over the Passover story here. Verse 4. Of Exodus chapter 12 in the Jewish Publication Society version. And if the household be too little for a lamb, then shall he and his neighbor next unto his house take one according to the number of the souls. According to every man's eating, he shall make your count for the lamb. I wanted to show you a scripture here. Let's see if I can find it. About the uh, new moons. I don't know why. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll find the scripture about that, but uh, definitely uh, the the horn should be blown in the new moon. Okay, let me go back. Verse four of Jewish the Jewish public publication society version of the Bible, Exodus twelve verse four, and if the household be too little for a lamb. Then shall he and his neighbor next unto the house take one according to the number of the souls. According to every man's eating, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. 
and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at dusk. So when we start the new moon, based on new, mo- new, mo- new moon observation and also the, the barley and, and so forth, the way they do it traditionally, then it begins with the process of getting a lamb. On the 10th of the month, you, know, you have some people actually doing this. Uh, and you know if they want to do it that way, that's their that's their business. Basically, uh, there's no temple, so if they want to do it, that's you know you can either do that or you can just buy a lamb at the grocery store, <laughs> or you or you can just kill the lamb yourself, according to the scriptures here. Verse five: Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same. You know, I prefer getting it from the grocery store because. People are very sensitive about killing animals uh, like that anyway. They'd rather someone butch the animal <laughs> today. But anyway, verse 6, And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly at the congregation of Israel shall kill it at dusk. Now, what is dusk? Let's find out. In the evening, it means uh, at night. Okay? Uh, verse 7, we're going to go into detail about specifically what that means. Matter of fact, I'm going to do that now. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, actually 16 rather, because there's, there's confusion again about that. Let's go over this. Verse 2 of Deuteronomy 16, verse 2. Well, actually, let me, let me go over verse 1. Observe the month of Aviv and keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God. For in the month of Aviv, the Lord thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. So he did it by night. Verse 2. And thou shalt sacrifice the Passover... Offering unto the Lord thy God of the flock and the herd in the place which the Lord shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Verse 3. Thou shalt eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days thou shalt eat unleavened bread therein, even the bread of affliction. Now keep in mind, this is a bread of affliction, folks. I want you to understand that. Obeying God involves affliction. For in haste did thou come forth out of the land of Egypt, that you may remember the day when you came forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of thy life. So when you're eating the Passover, that's what you're supposed to remember. You're supposed to remember the affliction that you came out of of the world. Egypt is a type of the world. And coming out of the world each and every time that you eat the bread of affliction, you should be thinking about how you came out of Egypt, typically the world. And that you should be continuing to stay out of the world. Just like I was listening to a friend the other day talking about looking at Spartacus. Spartacus really is almost pornography for what he was telling me. And I hope this person is listening to this. Uh, you need to repent of that and you need to uh, get out. You shouldn't be looking at Spartacus. Spartacus is really soft porn. And it's a violent um it's a violent series and there's no justification whatsoever in looking at that. And I know... Uh, God would never look at something like that. Uh, seeing brains being splattered all over the place and seeing women half-naked talking about sex and all that, that's not something of God to look at. And if you're looking at that, you're not you're not repenting. You're not getting the leaven out of you. You're not getting the leaven out of you. Um, hold your place here in Deuteronomy 16, verse 3, and let me turn.
I mean, it's an abomination. And, and it's, it's a lot of other things that are being done today that people try to justify and say that it's okay to do. And, and it's not. It's not. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. And you have false ministers going around preaching that leavening is not representing sin when the scriptures say, that, say so. Sure, leavening can be a positive thing too. But in this context, during the Passover, it's considered a negative thing, leaven. Uh, in First Corinthians um, chapter 5, verse 5. Actually, verse 6. First Corinthians 5, verse 6. I'm going to read this in a Jewish Bible, uh, not in a, in a complete Jewish Bible version for clarity's sake. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know the saying that it takes only a little hamath, which means uh, two, or, or matzah, to leaven a whole batch of dough? Well, actually, let me read this in the easier version for you to understand. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Your glory is not good. Know ye not that a le- little leaven leavens the whole lump? Verse 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So in this context, how can you say that leaven is not being compared to sin? But you get people trying to, you know, there's one scripture that says it's not sin, so it's not sin. But in this context, it's talking about sin. It's talking about sin. And we need to get the leavening out of our minds. And looking at Spartacus will not do it will not do it. So this person that was telling me the other day, and you know who you are, you need to, I'm just lovingly telling you, you need to repent of that. And you know, you know the kind of stuff that we both were involved in several years ago, and that is not going to help you get any closer to God. It'll help you get closer to the devil, though, but not to God. First uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Okay, so you have the, the the Bible defining leaven in the context of the Passover, and you get this false minister or the minister preaching false, saying that leaven in the Passover context is something positive. No, it's not. First Corinthians 5, verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast, and it's talking about the festival of Passover, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. So malice, leaven in this context is referring to malice and wickedness. What is malice? In the original uh, Greek, it means badness, depravity, evil, naughtiness. And, of course, I think we all know what wickedness means, sins. <laughs> okay. So, therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's your Bible definition of what unleavened bread should represent. When you're eating the matzos, you should interpret that as eating sincerity and truth. Christ is the truth, John 14, verse 6. That's what he meant, eat his body and drink his blood. He's talking about eating him, eating the words of God. That's what we need to be doing, and that's what Passover represents as well. All right, so let's go back to Exodus chapter 12. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and Yeshua was a male, and he was without blemish. And you shall take it out from the sheep 
or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it in the evening. And, oh, let me go back to Deuteronomy. Uh, I wanted to make a point here. Deuteronomy 16, verse 1. And the Jewish Publication Society version again. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God, for in the month of Abib the Lord thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. So they were brought out by night, in verse 2, and thou shalt sacrifice the Passover offering unto the Lord thy God of the flock and the herd in the place which the Lord shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Verse 3, thou shalt eat no leavened bread with it, because now you understand that leavened bread represents sin, puffiness, laziness, not wanting to do what you're supposed to do, not doing, doing dead works. Seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread there with the bread of affliction. For in haste didst thou come forth out of the land of Egypt. So when we sin, we ought to, in haste, run away from sin. We ought to, in haste, do what we have to do to prevent ourselves from continuing to sin. Just like, in haste, they got away from the land of Egypt when God woke them up to reality. When you know that you're doing something wrong, you need to, in haste, get away from it. Just like the Bible says, flee fornication. You should flee sin. In haste, don't lazily just okay. I, well, I'll just look at a little more Spartacus, or I'll do whatever I have to do, and then I'll do. I, I'm just justifying it because it's a nice story plot. No, whenever you see something that you know is wicked, you should stop yourself from seeing it and flee it. For in haste is thou come forth out of the land of Egypt, that you may remember the day when you came forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of thy life. Verse four, and there shall be. No leaven seen with thee in all thy borders seven days, neither shall any of the flesh which you sacrifice the first day at evening. So that tells you when the, the sacrifice is done, folks. It's done on the first day at evening, which is the 14th at evening. Remain all night until the morning. So that's when the sacrifice is done. It's going to be done, or we're not going to kill a lamb, but we're going to eat the lamb. Uh in the evening. In the evening. And then uh, let's continue on with this. Thou mayest not sacrifice a Passover offering within any of thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, but at the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to, to cause his name to dwell in. Well, Unfortunately, Jerusalem is the place where he calls his name to dwell in, but the temple's not built, so that's why there's, there's no longer sacrifices there. There thou shalt sacrifice the Passover offering at evening. Now here, let's get a little let's get a little uh descriptive here. At the going down of the sun and at the season that thou camest forth out of Egypt, the Jews traditionally around three o'clock started uh, sacrificing lambs until evening. All right, so that tells you when to do it. Now let's go back to Exodus chapter 12. Verse 3, Speak ye unto the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of the month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And this is on the tenth of the month, when the new moon occurs on Aviv 1, then the tenth of Aviv. Okay, this is what they were doing back then. And verse 4, and if the household be too little for a lamb, then 
shall he and his neighbor next unto his house take one according to the number of the souls. According to every man's eating, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male the first year, you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at dusk. Uh, and we know what dusk is in the evening. So kill it in the evening. And verse 7, And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the, on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the house wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in the night, roast with fire and, and unleavened bread. With bitter herbs they shall eat it. So at that night they, they, would, they would eat it. Verse 9, Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast it with fire, its head with, with legs, and with the pertinence thereof. Let me read it in the uh, Jewish publication version. Verse 7, And they shall take of the blood and put it on the two side posts on the lintel upon the houses where they shall eat it, and they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, with bitter herbs they shall eat it. So along with the Passover meal, you, you have bitter herbs, uh, you have parsley, horseradish, uh, you have a mixture of um, honey and apple and wine. All right, and that that is that is your pass, and then yeah, wine of course, and then you have the lamb. And in verse nine, eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head and his legs, and with the inwards thereof. Verse ten, you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, but that which remain of it until the morning you shall burn with fire, and thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt. And that night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's the reason why it's called Pesach or Passover, because because of the shed blood of the Lamb, which is symbolic here of Yeshua. He will pass over any human being. And I mean any human being that accepts Yeshua as his Lord and Savior and proves it by what he does or she does, not what, what they say, by keeping the commandments of God. I will pass over you, and there shall no plague be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Verse 14, And this day shall be unto you a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread, howbeit the first day you shall put away leaven, out of your houses, which represents sin, malice, and wickedness. For whosoever eat of leaven, bread, from that first day unto the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. Verse 16, And in the first day there shall be to you a holy convocation or assembly. And in the seventh day a holy convocation. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in the selfsame day have I bought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe this day throughout your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Verse 19. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses, for whosoever eat of that which is leaven, that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether it be a soldier or one that is born in the land of Israel, or in the land. Verse 20, you shall eat nothing leaven, 
and all your habitations shall you eat unleavened bread. Verse 21, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take your lambs according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. Verse 12. Verse 22, And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lentil and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood upon the lentil and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass when you be come to the land which the Lord will give you according as he has promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for that he passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses, and the people bowed their head and worshipped. And verse 28, and the, and the children of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne until the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. In verse 30, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all the servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. So and picture this in your mind. This is on the 14th at evening that this is occurring at midnight at 12 o'clock. Verse 31 of Exodus chapter 12, And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up. And this is around midnight, the 14th at evening. Rise up, get you forth from among my people, which is really the 15th, because the day begins, according to the Bible, at evening. Rise up, get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as ye have said. Verse 32, take both your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. <laughs> and verse 33, and the Egyptians were urging about the people to send them out of the land in haste. But they said, we are all dead men. So this was happening around midnight, on the beginning of the 15th. And I'll... I'll, I'll quote a couple of scriptures to prove that to you and the people took their dough before it was leavened and their kneading troughs being bound in their clothes upon their shoulders and the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses and they asked of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and see this is what I want people to understand too God is going to take care of you through afflictions folks this is what he's he, right there he, he got all the he got a, quite a bit of the wealth of the Egyptians for the Israelites Verse, our, our, ancient ancestors, our ancient ancestors, Exodus 12, verse 35, And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they asked of the Egyptians Jews of sil jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And you may be saying, our ancient ancestors. Yes, I'm saying that. We, the United States, the British Commonwealth of Nations, including Canada, the countries in northwestern Europe, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, all are part of Israel. You may think I'm crazy saying that. Well, I'm not. Uh, you have to realize that the the little nation of Israel in the Middle East is the tribe of Judah. Genesis chapter 49 and other places reveal that there were 12 tribes of Israel. The 10 tribes were taken by Isaiah in the 7, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact date, but around the 700s, they were taken into captivity. And then uh, in 5, I think, 86 B.C., the tribe of Judah was taken along with Benjamin and, and Levite, were taken. So 
that is the truth of the matter in reference to the tribes being taken. You, you had the ten tribes and you have the, the two tribes, uh, Levi, actually Levi is, is a part of Judah and then uh, Benjamin. And this occurred because of the great sin of Solomon having all kinds of wives and concubines, basically. And so he decided to, God decided to break the kingdom into half, give him the kingdom of Judah, basically. And then the ten tribes were given to another king. So that that began a division of Israel. But Israel should never have been divided, but they've been divided to this day because of sin. Well, anyway, historians think that the ten tribes are lost. They're not lost. They have been found. And if you want to find this out, then you go to Yur Davidi, Yur Davidi's website, www.b as in boy, r-i-t-a-m dot org. That's www.b as in boy, r-a-t, that's b r I-T-A-M dot org, Britam dot org, Yard Davidi. And he will go into detail about how the United States and the British Commonwealth of Nations, including Canada, the countries in Northwestern Europe, New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, are a part of Israel. And keep in mind, anybody can be a part of Israel, according to Ephesians chapter 2, if uh, you start to believe like Israel, keep the, the holy days, keep the, the commandments of God, and you realize that the Savior that you believe in, Yeshua, is King Messiah. He is the King of Israel. Exodus 12, verse 36. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Matter of fact, hold your place here. Uh, I wanted to turn to a scripture that identifies him as being the King of Israel. Because many people don't realize that. That your Lord and Savior that you worship is the King of Israel. <laughs> Uh, so many things that we have to realize and incorporate. Okay, I know it's in the Gospels here somewhere. I'm trying to find it. Okay. Let me go back here. I know it's in John somewhere. Should be in here. Is this the King James version? Okay, let me go back here. Let me look at John here. John chapter one, John chapter two. Oh, okay. I'm using a different version. All right, that's the reason why I wasn't showing it. Okay. Got so many different versions in this Bible software program. Okay, John. Let me go to John here. Okay. Um, still can't find it here. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, it's, it's limited to the first thousand words. Great. Okay. <laughs> There's so many of them in here, unfortunately. So let me go to... Uh, let me see. I will find it here. Let's see if I can find it here. Uh, it's in John chapter 1. 
Here we go. In John chapter 1, verse 48, it says, Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou was under the fig tree, I saw thee. And then in verse 49 of John chapter 1, Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, which means teacher, thou art the son of God, thou art the king of Israel. All right, so that's one of the titles of the Messiah, uh, that he is the king of Israel. And then Matthew chapter 27, verse 11, And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, You say it. <laughs> so he identified himself as being the king of Israel. And see, a part of it, the ten tribes merged back with the Jews uh, when they be returned back in the days of Ezra. So they were all called Israel at that time, even though Jesus even knew back then, let me quote another scripture, that the tribes were still lost. And I'm going to quote this scripture to you here. I can find it here. Okay. Verse, uh, Matthew 15, verse 24. And he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, so he, he knew that those tribes were still in the diaspora and, and they were scattered all over the place, the ten tribes. And the Jews have been kept together because it's been prophesied for them to stay together, them and the Levites and a few of the Benjamites. And Genesis chapter 49 reveals to you, for those that don't understand, that there are more than one tribe of Israel. There's 12 tribes. Okay, I just wanted to explain that. All right, getting back to Exodus chapter 12. All right, so Exodus 12, verse 34. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, and their knitting throws being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the uh, Egyptians uh, jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. Let me read this back in the Jewish publication, society version here. Okay, uh, Exodus 12, verse 36. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked, and they despoiled the Egyptians. Verse 37. And the, ch and the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on feet, on foot rather, beside children. And a mixed multitude, so let's understand this. Mixed multitude means mixed multitude. It was not just Jews or, or Israelites. Um, all the tribes of Israel, including the Jews of uh, the tribe of Judah, there was not, it was more than just that. It, it was also mixed multitude. All kinds of, of different types of human races uh, uh, went along with them. A mixed multitude went up also with them in flocks and herds, even very much cattle. Verse 39, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they bought forth out of Egypt. And that's symbolic because God is also calling people that are not of Jewish descent or Israeli stock into his fellowship. So, again, that's symbolic of uh, how God is calling people out of the world, which is a type of Egypt today. So, Exodus 12, verse 39, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they bought forth out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, neither had they prepared for themselves any victual. 
And that's the attitude we ought, we ought to have with sin, folks. We need to get get it out of our minds. Let's get away from it. Flee it. Be in haste to, to, to get rid of sin. Uh, Exodus 12, verse 40. Now the time that the children of Israel dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. Verse 41. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Verse 42. It was a night of watching unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt this same night is a night of watching unto the Lord for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. So this is a, a night uh, to be observed. Uh, you have one church teaching this incorrectly, like it's a separate day to observe. No, it's, the night of, of, of observation is the Passover night at evening. That's what we're supposed to observe. Verse 43. And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no alien eat thereof. In other words, a non-believer. But every man's servant that is bought forth money, when thou hast circumcised him, then he shall eat thereof. A soldier and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. So, yes, you do have to be circumcised to eat the Passover, So, according to what this scripture says. And one house, but you can participate in the Passover meal, but you can't eat the Passover lamb. And one house shall it be eaten, thou shalt not carry forth all of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. All congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger shall sojourn with thee, and will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as one that is born in the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat the uh, Passover. And this is a uh, important verse here. Exodus 12, verse 49. One law, one Torah, one teaching shall be to him that is home-born and unto the stranger that sojourn among you, so that means God's law is really for everyone. You have people taking this out of context and saying, well, there's one law for the Jew and one law for the Israelite and one law for uh, the stranger, and that's true. That's not true, not according to this and other scriptures. One law, or one Torah, shall be to him that is home-born and to the stranger that sojourn among you. Verse 50 of Exodus 12, Then did all the children of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, by their host. And let's turn to Numbers chapter 33. Numbers chapter 33. Verse 1. These are the stages of the children of Israel by which they went forth out of the land of Egypt by their host under the hand of Moses and Aaron. And verse 2. And Moses wrote their goings forth stage by stage by the commandments of the Lord, and these are the stages at their goings forth. And they journeyed from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the month, on the morrow after the Passover. So the 15th day of the month was on the morrow after the Passover. The children of Israel went out with a high hand in the sight of all the Egyptians. So the, at evening was the 15th day of the month, according to, these, according to the scriptures. And verse 4, while the Egyptians were bearing them that the Lord had smitten among them, even all their firstborn upon the gods, also uh, the Lord executed judgment. So if we read this in the King James Version, it's a little clearer. And Numbers 33, verse 3, And they departed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the month, on the morrow, after the Passover, after the Passover sacrifice. The children of Israel went out with a high hand. And that's what that's referring to there. So the first day, the first day of the on the fifteenth day of the first month, which is on a full moon, on the morrow of the Passover. On the morrow of the Passover. On the morrow of the Passover, 
means the 15th day of the month. Okay? And if you look that up on the morrow, it means the next day. Tomorrow is the next day. The next day begins in the evening. Okay? All right, so that's the Passover. And what are the lessons that we need to learn in reference to the Passover? Well, first of all, uh, I think I read the scripture to you, but I'll read it to you again. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Realize the Passover alludes to the Messiah. The Messiah was was a lamb, and as, as I'm going to prove to you, that died on the, the 14th of uh, it on the cross at 3 o'clock. Okay. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. It says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So he was the Passover lamb. That's the lesson that we ought to understand. And then John 1, verse 29. John 1, verse 29. The next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And that's what the Passover, that's what he represents as well. The Passover Lamb takes away the sins of the world. And the Day of Atonement and Yom Kippur is linked with Passover because that is the what this le- uh, leads to is the purification of not only the Jews but the the entire world. Okay, and the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. That's what the Passover represents as well. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us, in other words, uh, salvation. Verse 13, For of the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, so all those offerings and so forth, what that did is purified the flesh, folks. But it didn't purify your mind. And that's what the sacrifice of the, of the Messiah does as a lamb. Helps us to purify our minds. Verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God to purge your conscience or your minds from dead works to serve the living God. So keep in mind when you're doing the Passover, it's to provoke you to do good works, which is, again, the first doctrine, one of the, the, the first of the basic doctrines of God that are outlined in Hebrews chapter 6. is repentance from dead works. That's what the Passover sacrifice does. It allows you to repent from dead works and to do good works and serve the living God. To purge your conscience. The blood purges your conscience. The the idea of even understanding what or the reason why he sacrificed should purge your mind and influence you to run away in haste from sin. That's what we need to be doing. To get away from Egypt. Get away from the world. 
Get away from that. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 3. This is the prophecy of the Messiah. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we had, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely we have borne our our griefs. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. The affliction, the bread of affliction, that's what it's called, right? The the bread of affliction. You have to see Christ in all this. There's a a wonderful movie that I recommend you get that Michael Root sells on his website. Uh, It's too bad you can't get it free, but uh, it's just a movie. And uh, it's a very good movie, and I recommend anyone look at that movie to really get an understanding of what the Passover represents. But So let's understand that the Passover lamb represents the Messiah. The Messiah was despised and rejected of men, and he still is today. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid it as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And anyone that follows this great God-man will also be grieved and will be a man of affliction as well. And that's what people don't seem to understand. <laughs> and he, he warned us and told us this, that we would also be despised and rejected of men, just like he was. And we would also be a man or woman of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And And, you know, I hope that people that do know me understand what I go through. Grief in the original Hebrew in this scripture means malady, uh, anxiety, calamity. You know, you're going to be acquainted with calamity. <laughs> Grief. Uh, you're going to be a man of sorrows, a woman of sorrows, of affliction, pain. You're going to be despised. Uh, you're going to be rejected. That's if you take up your cross like he did, that's that's what you're going to be going to. That's what you should be seeing also during the Passover. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 21. Verse 22, rather, Matthew 10, verse 22. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. You should be hated of all men for my name's sake. So you have to understand what this is all about. Uh, you're following a man that was despised, that, that was hated, and still is today. No one knows really, not too many people know who the real Messiah is, folks, of the Bible. They don't know that. They know what their false ministers have teach, taught them. But they don't know the real Messiah. And I'm telling you who the real Messiah is here. Uh, Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Verse 27. It says, and Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You can't be a disciple of a man that was afflicted and despised. 
if you're not willing to go through what he went through. You're a pretender. I call them pretenders, not believers. Luke 14, verse 27, Whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And I don't think I have to tell you what happened uh, in the context of the cross. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 10. It says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Verse 12, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, not on the earth, in heaven, folks. This life is not a life for us to get all the riches in the world. That is not going to come until the, the, the kingdom of God becomes a reality. Reward and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which, which, which were before you. So all the prophets have been persecuted, including the greatest prophet of all, Yeshua. And if you follow Yeshua, you're going to be persecuted too. You can't get away from it. John chapter 7, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but me it hates, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. People don't want and this is in the context of going up into the feast, and I think it was the feast of uh, Passover, I think it was anyway, but it was one of the feasts, oh, it was the Feast of Tabernacles in this context. But I just wanted to point that out, because many people think that the whole world loves you, sure. No. I mean, in verse 7, the world cannot hate you because it, it, it hates me. He says the world hates him because I testify that the works there are evil. And people don't want to hear, a lot of people don't want to hear that they're wrong about anything. They don't want to hear that. Matter of fact, Proverbs 9, verse 7 says, He that reproves a scorner gets to himself a shame, and he that rebuke of a wicked man gets himself a blot. In verse 8, reprove not a scorner, but that not he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man and he will love thee. So you should rebuke wise people, not unwise people. Unwise people will hate you to the core if you try to correct them. So that's very important to uh, to understand. Okay. See, in, in, in 1 John 4, verse 4, it says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. And he's talking about the devil, of course. Verse 5, They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world hears them. Okay, uh, in Mark 10, verse 28 to 30. Then Peter began to say unto them, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. So I want you to understand this. I just read to you about Yeshua being despised and afflicted, a man of sorrows, uh, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He stated that you must take up your cross and follow him. If you're not willing to do that, then you are a pretender, not a believer. You're not his disciple. And this is all in, in the context of, of sacrifice. And then in, in 28, then Peter began to say unto them, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. 
In verse 29, And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake, and the gospels. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. With persecutions. And I just want to emphasize that word in this particular scripture. Persecutions. It means persecutions. Difficulties. Problems. And in the world to come, eternal life. But what's the context of this? You have to be willing to give up everything. For God, and if you don't have that attitude of wanting to sacrifice and give up everything for God, He's not going to bless you a hundredfold. He's not going to He's not going to bless you a hundredfold. And uh, Matthew chapter six, that's the criteria. You have to be willing to give up everything. You need to give up all your sins and, and the things that you like, uh, the Spartacus, uh, looking at other things. You have to give those things up. If you don't give those things up, then you're going to continue to struggle. And if you're around people that don't want to give those things up, then their behavior is going to affect you and limit you from doing things. So so you have to, to be careful about who you're around and who you live with. Sometimes, I mean, you have no choice but to live with this individual, but you, you have to, to uh, pray to God in your closet, be strong, and deal with the situation, and then God will take care of it. But we have to be willing to, to sacrifice everything for God for him to bless us a hundredfold with persecutions. And that's something that we all, each, and every, I know all of us can improve on that. Sacrificing everything. And that's what the sacri- that's what the Passover represents. You have the God-man sacrificing himself, Yeshua. We must be willing to do the same. And Matthew six verse nineteen says, "Lay not up for your treasure, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and there thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where the thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart or mind will be at." Okay. So, and then he talks about being stingy in Matthew 6, verses 22 to 23. Don't be stingy. And he says, no man can serve two masters. And then right here, and I've I've heard people working on the Sabbath, and they say, well, hey, you know, I've got to feed my family, blah, blah, blah. But, well, this is what God says about that. Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. And what do we all do? We worry about our lives, right? But he commands us not to. What you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? This is what the Passover is all about, faith, about God stepping in and taking care of his people. Verse 26, look at the birds flying around. They neither plant nor harvest, nor do they gather food into their barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they are? Verse 27, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to his life? And verse 28, And why be anxious about clothing? Think about the fields of wild irises and how they grow. Neither They neither work nor spin thread. Yet I tell you that even Shlomo, or Solomon, and all his glory was clothed as beautifully as one of these. Verse 30, If this is how God clothes grass in the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, thrown in an oven, won't he much more clothe you, 
What little trust you have. What little trust you have. Verse 31, so don't be anxious asking what will we eat, what will we drink, or how will we be clothed. So he's telling us not to be anxious about those things. Stop worrying about those things. Stop worrying about those things. Don't be anxious about it. Don't be negative about it. Okay? You have to trust God. Verse 32, for it is the pagans who set their hearts on it. We shouldn't be setting our hearts on food and drink. That's what the pagans do. That's what he said in verse 32. So don't be anxious asking what will we eat, what will we drink, or what will be clothed. They're worrying about food, clothes, and drink. And he's telling us in verse 32, for it is the pagans who set their hearts on all these things. Your heavenly Father knows you have need of these, of all these things. He says, your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So what we need to do first, which is equivalent to sacrificing and giving everything to him, your mind to him, so that he could influence us to live the right way. But seek first his kingdom and his right, and you don't do it. He's not forcing you, but you willingly do it. Say, hey, God, clean my mind out. Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be given to you as well. Now, that's a promise. He's going to give you plenty of food, plenty of drink, and plenty of clothes if you put him first in your life. And putting him first in your life means keeping the commandments. Righteousness Psalm 119, verse 172, is keeping the commandments. Verse 34, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough problems already. Okay, so that's what we have to do. What we should be eating is the following in John chapter 6. Symbolized by Yeshua, who is the truth. John 6, verse 31. Our fathers ate man in the desert, as it says in the Tanakh. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In verse 32, Yeshua said to them, Yes, indeed, I tell you, it wasn't Moshe who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father is giving you the genuine bread from heaven. Verse 33. For God's bread is the one who comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, it's Yeshua. That's God's bread, which is symbolized by the matzo that we eat. Verse 34. They said to him, Sir... Give us this bread from now on. In verse 35, Jesus answered, I am the bread which is life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever trusts in me will never be thirsty. But he's not talking about food here. Verse 36, I told you that you have seen but still don't trust. Verse 37, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will certainly not turn away. For I have come down from heaven to do not my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Verse 39. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should not lose any of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. Of course, if you obey him, they won't, you won't be lost. Verse 40. Yes, this is the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and trust in him should have eternal life, and that I should raise them up on the last day. Again, the Passover lamb redeems those who are believers. Verse 41. At this, the Judeans began grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread which has come down from heaven. 
In verse 42, they said, Isn't this Yeshua ben Yoshev? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I have come down from heaven? Verse 43, Yeshua answered them, Stop grumbling to each other. Verse 44, No, no one can come to me unless the Father, the one who sent me, draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by Adonai, or the Lord. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Verse 46, not that, ever, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who was from God. So Yeshua is from God, folks. He has seen the Father. That's what makes him God, because he is from God. He has seen the Father. Yes, indeed, I tell you, whoever trusts has eternal life. I am the bread which is life. Your fathers ate the man. Your fathers ate the man in the desert. They died. The manna in the desert. They died. Verse 50. But the bread that comes down from heaven is such that a person may eat it and not die. Verse 51. I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Furthermore, the bread that I will give is my own flesh, and I will give it for the life of the world. So he's alluding back to the Passover sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 52, that this the Judeans disputed with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 53, they just didn't get what he was saying. And then Yeshua said to them, yes, indeed, I tell you that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Okay, so he's he's talking about something that, unfortunately, they had a difficult time grasping, that he was talking symbolically about eating the words of God. That's what he was talking about. And, and John 6, verse 54, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That is, I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He's talking about spiritual concepts here, not physical concepts. He's not talking about cannibalism. Verse 56, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I live in him. Just as the living Father sent me, I live through the Father, so also whoever eats me will live through me. Now he's not talking about literally eating him. He's talking about spiritually eating him by eating his words, by reading and studying the Bible fervently like your life is at stake. Verse 58, so this is the bread that has come down from heaven. It is not like the bread the fathers ate. They're dead. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. He said these things as he was teaching in the synagogue. And verse 60, on hearing it, many of his Talmudim said, this is a hard word. Who can bear to listen to it? And verse 61, but Yeshua, aware that his Talmudim, or disciples, were grumbling about this, said to him, this is a trap for you. Verse 62, suppose you were to see the Son of Man going back up to where he was before. Verse, now he's talking about what he was alluding to in the first place. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That's who he was talking about. Eat the words of God. Study the scriptures fervently. Verse 64, yet some among you do not trust. For Yeshua knew from the outset which ones would not trust him, also which ones would betray him. So anyway... This this is what the Passover sacrifice is all about, folks. And then, in reference to the, the eating the flesh and the blood, let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. Verse 
verse 4. But he answered, the Tanakh says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then in Deuteronomy, and he got that from, from the following scripture, in Deuteronomy 8. Let's turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. All the mitzvah I am giving you today, you are to take care to obey so that you will live. Increase your numbers, and mitzvah, mitzvah means commandment. Enter and take possession of the land Adonai, the Lord, swore about to your ancestors. Verse 2. You are to remember everything of the way in which Adonai led you these 40 years in the desert, humbling and testing you in order to know what was in your heart or mind, whether you would obey his mitzvah or not. Okay? Verse 3, he humbled you, allowing you to become hungry, and then fed you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever known, to make you understand that a person does not live on food alone, but on everything that comes from the mouth of God. And verse 4, he said, don't worry about food and drink and clothes. Well, in verse 4 of this, during these 40 years, the clothing you were wearing didn't grow old and your feet didn't swell up. Verse 5, think deeply about it. Adonai was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his child. Verse 6, so obey the mitzvah of the commandments of Adonai your God, living as he directs and fearing him. Verse 7, for Adonai your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams springing with water, welling up from the depths and the valleys and the hillside, which is represent, represents heaven, represents the kingdom of heaven and the millennium and, and just beautiful, a beautiful environment. That's what that's pointing to. So I'm hoping you're getting a clear, a clear picture here of what Passover represents. It's not just eating matzo and getting leavening out of your home. This physical act should spur you spiritually to get the, the, the wickedness and malice and deceit out of your mind and the rebellion out of your mind. You should, just like the Egyptians, they, uh, I mean the Israelites, our ancient ancestors, they... They got away from Egypt as quick as they can after the sacrifice of the lamb. So should we. We should use the Passover experience to purge our conscience and our minds from dead works to serve the living God. That's what it's all about. Acts chapter 14. And realize that on that journey toward doing that, you're going to get persecuted, that you're going to be afflicted and despised, just like the Messiah. So that's what you have to understand. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're a pretender. You're not a believer. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Strengthening the Talmudim, the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith and reminding them that it is through many hardships that we must enter the kingdom of God. We're going to have problems, folks. Financial problems, health problems, all kinds of problems. To enter the kingdom of God. And if you don't understand and believe that, it's something wrong with your relationship with God. I just read to you the Messiah was despised. He had afflictions, persecutions, and so will we. And he even warned us and told us, blessed when, when people revile you and persecute you because of me. And he also stated that uh, people will hate us. In John chapter 17, and many people hate me for what I'm doing, but I don't care. I'm serving God, and as long as God is on my side, no one can be against me because they will all be defeated. God will always win, and the devil will always lose. 
You need to always remember that. He may have his fun. He may hurt me and hurt other believers. But in the end, he's going to get his. God will be the ultimate victor. And that's what you must understand. In verse 11 of John chapter 17. It says, Indeed, all I have is yours and all you have is mine, and I in them and I have been glorified. Now I am no longer in the world. They are in the world, but I am coming to you, Holy Father. Guard them by the power of your name, which you have given to me, so that they may be one, just as we are. And that explains how God the Father and Jesus Christ is one. Verse 12, when I was with them, I guarded them by the power of your name, which you have given to me. Yes, I kept watch over them, and not one of them was destroyed, except the one meant for destruction. He's talking about uh, Judas. Verse 13, but now I am coming to you, and I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have my may have my joy complete in themselves. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world hated them, because they do not belong to the world, just as I myself do not belong to the world. I hope you understand what I'm telling you, folks. The world, or Egypt, is not going to love you. There's going to be a few that will, but the majority will not, because we're not of the world. We're not of the world. We don't live like the world. Verse 15, and that's why we're going to have problems with people on our jobs, in our lives, because we just live differently than them. We obey the commandments and they don't. So that's where the persecutions are going to come from. Verse 15, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. Verse 16, they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. We don't, you know, Our citizenship is in heaven. That's what the Bible says. It's not here. It's not here. Hold your place here. Let me turn to that scripture. It's in Philippians, I think. Philippians. Okay, let me look at another version here. Philippians, because that's an important verse to understand. Many people think our citizenship is on earth, and it's not. According to the scriptures, it's not anyway. And, of course, we we get into this whether or not people want to obey (laughs) what the scriptures state. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Yeah, in the complete Jewish Bible version, Philippians 3, verse 20, but we are citizens of heaven. Now, what does the word citizens mean, folks? Now, I know... And the King James Version is incorrectly translated conversation. But the Greek word is po-it-yoma, and it means a community, our citizenship. And it can mean conversation, but really, it really means citizenship. Just like we're citizens of the, of the United States, it says our citizenship is in heaven. Okay, so in the book of Revelation, it reveals, and in, in John chapter 14, that the Father, as I'm speaking, is preparing rooms separate rooms from each of his sons to dwell in. And the daughters are going to become sons, it appears. They're going to be just like the angels. Uh, there will not be any uh, sexual, um, no sex, and uh, there's not going to be any gender differences, it looks like, in the kingdom of God. So we're all going to have rooms in heaven. That's going to be our abode. That's where our citizenship is. Now, we're going to be ruling on the earth, but it appears that we're going to be living in heaven. That's where that's where our because you know 
the heavenly Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven from God in Revelation chapter 21. So anyway, let me go back. So, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse uh, 12. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. Observe the Shabbat to keep it holy as the Lord thy God commanded. He's saying, well, why am I quoting something about the Sabbath? You'll see this in a minute. You'll see in a minute. Verse 13. Six days shall you labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is a Shabbat unto the Lord thy God. In it you shall not do any manner of work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox, nor thine ass, nor any of the cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, uh, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. And thou shalt remember that thou was a servant in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God brought thee out Hence, by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm, therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath day is linked with the whole event of Passover, which is pretty interesting in itself. And and he said that keeping the Shabbat should help you to remember that you are a servant in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God brought thee out from hence by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Shabbat. So the Shabbat and Passover are linked. They're linked together to help you to understand the salvation of God. And then when you read Exodus chapter 1 of the harsh, uh, in verse 11 here of Exodus chapter 1, it says, Therefore they, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities Pithorn and Ramses, and the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread about abroad, and they were a dread because of the children of Israel. And Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. They, they didn't even rest on the Shabbat. They didn't even know about the Shabbat anymore. And they made their lives bitter with hard service, and mortar, and in brick, and all manner of service in the field, and all their service wherein they made them serve with rigor. And see, God doesn't want us working that way. He wants to deliver us. He wants us to free us from the afflictions of the world. But for us to be free from the afflictions of the world, we have to obey him totally, not just halfway. That's the only way he's going to reward us for that. And then we must have an attitude of serving, folks. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I exhort you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourselves as a sacrifice, living and set apart for God. This will please him. It is the logical temple worship for you. Verse 2. In other words, do not let yourselves be conformed to the standards of this world. Instead, keep letting yourself be transformed by the renewing of your minds. What did I read to you about in Hebrews again? About what the sacrifice of Christ is supposed to do. It's supposed to purge our minds from dead works. Same concept here. Verse 2 of Romans chapter 12. In other words, do not let yourselves be conformed to the standards of the world. Instead, keep letting yourselves be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Repent, repent, repent. The kingdom of God is coming. Renew your minds so that you will know what God wants and will agree that what he wants is good, satisfying, and able to succeed. That's what we have to do, folks. This is a life of burden and affliction, and we all together as an assembly, as believers, 
must bear one another's burdens. We must help one another. We all are going through something. We're all going through trials. And we all need to help one another. And I tell you right now, on the authority of the Scriptures and of God himself, I know that we are not doing that collectively as an assembly. Genesis chapter 6. Well, actually, let's go, uh, not Genesis, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, suppose someone is caught doing something wrong. You who have the Spirit should set him right, but in a spirit of, of humility, keeping an eye on yourself so that you won't be tempted to. So don't be a hypocrite when you correct somebody. That's what he's saying. Galatians 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, and this way you will be fulfilling the Torah's true meaning, which the Messiah upholds. So we should be bearing one another's burdens, folks. We should be helping one another, not running away from each other's problems. Uh, the Greek word burdens means borrows. It means uh, weight, uh, you know, things that weigh us down. We should be helping one another. We should be helping one another. And that is very lacking in the assemblies of God today. Very much so. Very much so. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, it says, Thus, if one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts share in his happiness. And that's what we should be doing. That's what the Passover season should also influence us to do. During this time, of course, you should be giving to the poor. You should be giving also to Torah teachers like myself. This is the time of the three times of the year uh, where you should be, uh, it should be, it's a pilgrimage feast. You should travel if you can to preferably other Torah teachers who are going to give you good teaching. You should be giving to them. You should be giving to poor people. All of God's festivals should be an opportunity to give. Luke 6, verse 38, Yeshua states, Give, and it should be given unto you. It's a commandment. We should all be giving and not, and not be stingy. Okay, so that that's what the Passover is, is all about. Yeshua came that, he may, that we may have life and have it more abundantly. He came to release us from the stresses and strains of the world, the wickedness of the world, by him becoming the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And he will take away your sins if you believe in his commandments that are all throughout the Bible. And we have to follow him. And realize that along with we also are going to inherit the the, uh, the the problems that he had, the difficulties that he has. We we must take up our cross. We must suffer for righteousness' sake. If we're not willing to suffer for righteousness' sake, none of us are going to make it in the kingdom of God. Not one of us. So we must understand that suffering is a part of the program. First, through much problems, you will enter the kingdom of God. It's not going to be an easy cake. And if you want God to bless you a hundredfold, you have to be willing to sacrifice your life for him. You've got to stop worrying about food, stop worrying about clothes, and stop worrying about drink. God took care of all of that, despite their wickedness in the wilderness. And he can do the same for us in the spiritual wickedness of today, or the spiritual wilderness of today, if we just believe. In closing, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For brothers, I don't want you to miss the significance of what happened to our fathers. All of them were guided by the pillar of cloud 
and they all passed through the sea. And in connection with the cloud and with the sea, they were all immersed themselves into Moshe. Also, they all ate the same food from the Spirit, and they all drank from the same drink from the Spirit. For they drank from a Spirit-sent rock which followed them, and that rock was Messiah. So this is another scripture that emphatically proves that the God of the Old Testament was Yeshua, the Messiah. Verse 5, yet with the majority of them, God was not pleased, so their bodies were strewn across the desert. Now, these things took place as a prefigurative historical events, warning us not to set our hearts on evil things as they did. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As the Tanakh puts it, the people sat down to eat and drink and then got up to indulge in robbery. Verse 8, and let us not engage in sexual immorality, as some of them did, with the consequence that 23,000 died in a single day. Um, an individual that told me yesterday that you were looking at Spartacus, don't engage in that. Because the consequence is that you could die. And let us not put the Messiah to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the snakes. Verse 10, and don't grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroying angel. First Corinthians 10, verse 11. These things happened to them as pre, pre, prefigurative or prefigurative historical events. And they were written down as a warning to us who are living in the end times. Okay? So we've we got to understand what Passover is all about, folks. It's not just about having a nice meal. It has a lot of symbolic significance. And we must take it serious. And I'm going to go over first fruits next week. I'm going to go whenever we have the holy days. Uh, it's going to be my um, my habit, good habit of going over what these days mean, because these days all outline the wonderful, astounding plan of God. And we need, and it really begins with the Passover. It begins with that. It begins with us getting the death penalty out of, out of our minds and uh, out of our psyche. And then from there, it begins with us doing good works, not dead works, or alive works, to prove to God that we should receive the gift of immortality. And it all begins with the Passover. Because without the Passover, none of us could do anything. None of us can do anything. So let me explain to you briefly uh, from this book. And if I get cut off here, um, it's going to continue to play. I have about a minute and 36 seconds left. So I'm only going to probably only take about two or three more minutes. I just want to read out of this book, God's Appointed Times, A Practical Guide for Understanding and Celebrating the Biblical Holy Days, or Holidays, rather, by Barney Kostan. And on page 32, it says, On the day of 14th, of Nisan on the first day of Passover approaches final preparation for the Seder and that's what the Passover meal is called Seder must be made by now the preliminary arrangements such as shopping for kosher for Passover products matzah, wine or grape juice and any other unleavened food substitutes should be completed a, tra a traditional Seder plate and ceremonial items are also needed and uh, he's talking about a, a shank bone but it's nothing wrong with having a lamb as long as you know this lamb should not be sacrificed and he's talking about an egg. I don't like the egg because of the uh, the allusion to uh, Easter. And then the Karaset, the sweet apple nut mix, I told you about that. You should have that. It's a wonderful reminder of the sweetness of our redemption. The 
carpets of the parsley, a green vegetable, speaks of life. All these Seder plate elements can be purchased or prepared from the recipes included later in this chapter. A Kaddish cup, a goblet for each person, plus the cup of Elijah with his own place setting is also needed to prepare the Seder table. A matzo tash and ceremonial washing bowl of water are also essential items. I'm getting ready to leave here live, but I still will be on the uh, recorded version. Each reading participant will need a Haggadah. If the leader feels comfortable, it is possible to use a traditional Haggadah. That's the actual uh, recitation of the Passover, available through any Jewish bookstore. Many believers prefer to use a Messianic Jewish Haggadah. These contain most of the traditional readings, but also accompanied by relevant New Covenant passages and explanations. It says, one resource I recommend to Messianic believers is the Messianic Passover Haggadah by Messianic Jewish Publishers. I think I have that. It is a quality Messianic Haggadah. Messianic Jewish Publishers also have a very helpful preparation guide for the Seder meal. Pesach, which is spelled P-E-S-A-C-H, officially rises as the sun sets on the 15th of Nisan. Since most Jewish communities outside Israel celebrate the first two nights of Passover with a traditional Seder, many Messianic believers have different types of Seders each night. Our congregational custom is to have a large community Seder the first night of Pesach for our members and to reach out to those who need to hear the message of redemption. The second night is usually spent at a smaller home Seder with family and close friends. Whatever your options, I encourage you to make plans to celebrate this wonderful festival. The Seder is the focal point of the celebration of Passover, yet it is an eight-day holy day. The Torah says we are to remove the leaven from our homes and eat matzah during this time. For some, this might be the ultimate inconvenience. What? No bagels for eight days, yet when spiritually appraised, even something like eating matzah crackers for a week can be an uplifting experience. Remember the symbolism. It is not just spring house cleaning. It is remind us of our need for spiritual cleansing and repentance. Hence, every time we eat a matzah sandwich during Pesach, we are reminded of the meaning of the holy day. Every time we long for a leavened cookie, we are reminded of this great spiritual truth. It is my prayer that Pesach will become a source of joyful celebration as believers experience Messiah, our Passover, in an intimate and practical way. Let us therefore celebrate the feast. And so I just wanted to um, highlight that. And for those who are celebrating Passover, Jews and, and Gentiles alike, have a happy Passover. Have a happy uh, festival of unleavened bread and uh, or hog. Hamatza, that's the Hebrew way of saying the Festival of Unleavened Bread, and uh, God willing, I will be available for you next week. May Elohim bless and protect you, and have a wonderful Passover. Shalom. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. 
and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse.